the Everything Sequel Podcast is brought to you by Tua T Fitness and the Vegas Beer Guys. Everything Sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Wayne's World 2 edition. Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards coming to you from Pacific Beach. And of course, the man from Chula Vista, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, lover, excited lover of Wayne's World 2. Say hello, Tom. Oh, Dick Van Dyke Show. Oh my god. I <laughs> There were small jokes like that. Yes. Like replete through the movie that warmed my heart and yeah. made me so happy. And part of it was that I knew that there were people say age 30 and younger mm-hmm. that wouldn't have a fucking clue what he's talking about. Right. And I'm so glad that I do. <laughs> But it's interesting. You're absolutely yeah. You're absolutely right. There is that kind of uh, that kind of elitist um, that savviness that you know that it, it's a it's a kind of it's a cultural savviness that he's playing to. Yeah. But I like the fact that you know it's a trade off sometimes between you know what's going on in media now and right. But he has the the thing, and I said this when we did Austin Powers. It's it's the thing that always puts Mike Myers above other um, auteurs in this ilk. For me, is that depth of knowledge of film history and the the overall media right. literacy, and the fact that he can just pull out that reference from his ass. It seems mm-hmm. like I mean, it looks like an improv. Because it could, we, yeah, we it's don't certainly know. not a big. It's certainly not a big moment, you know. Right. Like it, it, it's an offhand reference. The fact that he can just pull that out of his ass at any given moment is what is what makes you know is 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 what keeps me coming back to Mike Myers, because I know he's he's not just going to try and sell me on what the latest thing is. He's yeah. going to pay attention to what's going on in the media around him. That's why we have Jurassic Park in this movie. Yeah. Um, well, and, Aero, and I had and Aerosmith you know, and you know a bunch right. of things which are of the moment, but because I have a note back that it's into... very uh, airplane two in terms of like say the ET reference in yeah. a movie that came out the same year. Yeah. I mean, it and it's just a, a matter months, of ev- yeah, because this movie came out in December, but still. it's exactly the same as airplane two. But, yeah, and and it and it's exactly the same reason. It's like everyone's going to be doing it, right? We need to we need to have something, and yeah. yet, in terms of execution, it's because the dinosaur super... itself looks ridiculous but amazing. Like, yeah, you know, I mean it 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 hits the exact right tone for Every a parody time. of that moment. Every time, yeah, and you know it's, but but that's it. It's like you 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 don't. I think I think there, there's a, there's an attitude towards referencing in this movie that is exactly where I always want it to be mm-hmm. in any movie I see, which is it's like you don't get this first you know you don't get the first reference we're throwing at us, 
there is something in here that you will understand and appreciate. Yeah. And everything to do with Kim Basinger in this movie is, is a great <laughs> example of that. Yeah. Because I think a lesser artist in this ilk would simply make this all about nine and a half weeks. Oh, you're yeah, that's interesting. Whereas Mike, whereas Mike Myers and, you know, everyone involved with this, and it's not just Mike Myers, you know, there's a, a whole heap of talent involved in sure. making this movie. Um, they're going, well, no, we want to we want to also reference classic film noir. Right. And the Bond movies. Right. <laughs> she was a, Mike Myers is like, guys, she was a Bond girl. Right. Not the most famous, but she was a Bond she girl. Was a she Bond needs girl. a Bond girl name. Yeah, right, right, right. So it's like, but he thinks like, oh, you don't know nine and a half weeks, but you've probably heard of film noir, and I'm sure you've seen a Bond movie, and that's kind of egalitarian in a way that, the way that other kinds of postmodern referencing in movies doesn't really necessarily do, mm-hmm. and I appreciate, and I think that's because Mike Myers is 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 holistic in his appreciation of pop. Well, culture. and it's, I just, I have. I always really appreciate when I am seeing sophisticated humor so delivered sophisticated. in such a silly way. So that's, sophisticated. That's, I, you know, that's when you're turning coal into diamonds. I agree. I agree. And there's, there's so there's so much of that, in, and in, yeah, it never it never feels like it never feels like someone who is doing it because they want you to know they're smarter than you are. Mm-hmm. But you know they are. Right. Because of because of how uh how thoughtfully it's all put together. And I think I said this in our in our ranking episode that the first the first act of this movie, the first half hour of this movie to me is perfect. Cuz at one point I just stopped and I wrote a note that said like, what was my problem when I first saw this movie? Because this movie right now is perfect. Yeah. Not just... I mean, in every fashion. As in every a sequel, fashion. As ju- just as uh, uh, a narrative. Like, yeah. You know? <laughs> like, everything about it is exactly right. The, the impasse at the beginning of this oh movie. Oh, my God, Mike. And how it's handled is sublime i have that exact note here i he, here's what here's what mike myers here's what wayne mike myers's wayne says uh in the first few minutes of the movie welcome to wayne's world 2 let me bring you up to speed <laughs> i mean have we not this is right. everything we've talked about this movie is a wet i mean not just not just of sequel conventions also just general filmic conventions yeah, but right but in this moment in the movie you it tells you immediately we're aware of how sequels work right right we understand all the conventions and cliches you're not uh, going to do a rocky you're not going to see the last five minutes of of the a previous movie yeah. you're not going to have characters trying to have an exposition dump to explain what's happened right. in between the movies he's going to look right to camera yeah. say this is Wade's world too let me catch you up but he's also, but it's also when he says, "Let's take the scenic route." Yeah, he's also aware that you know, uh, that he's sending up and making a comic virtue of the lengthy exposition and recap montages that right. are needed for a sequel, 
And yet but that's also same... right after giving us some Adam West Batman as a reference. Absolutely. Um, that, that's very true. That is a sequ- That is a like a cliffhanger reference, isn't it? As yeah. well. And then he says, "A year is pa- a year has passed," which I mean spoke yes, to me right. having done this podcast for a couple of years now, an understanding of fam- familiarity with the way that real move, real world, and movie timelines work in the worlds of sequels. Um, and I thought, you know, the the for me the cherry on the cake, the coup de gras is. Um, the, you know, there's always a time lapse between a, a a sequel and the original that you have to catch people up on. Something happens in between the movies. Right. And here, it's that Garth got pubes. <laughs> it's like all the information you don't need to know. Yeah. Prioritized in a big way. <laughs> and also, you know, Wayne's well, increasing we body find, hair as well. We do find out. What's that? And Wayne's increasing body hair as well. Yeah. But well, otherwise, we and, and they've moved to an abandoned doll factory. Right. Again, another gag that you could literally throw anything in there as a placeholder, and it wouldn't be as funny as making it an abandoned doll factory. It's like <laughs> even even the 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 slightest details in this movie have a kind of detailed perfection about them. Yeah. Uh, even if you're not going to do anything with it, which they don't do anything with the abandoned doll factory, but just the knowledge that they're they're you know that like they're they're inside potentially inside a Twilight Zone episode, I think is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, but I absolutely I absolutely agreed with you that. And the other thing that again that makes me think this this movie is working on on a level that is high as the best kinds of comedy in this period is um the kind of they make a point of switching between the videographic quality of 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 the of the mm-hmm. cable show yeah and the film um and that's what the larry sanders show is doing at this exact moment right 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 and I, I I I can just tell Mike Myers under you know knows well and I that think Mike Myers would have done a modern way to play actually with I don't know images did 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 the um did the did the sketch of Wayne's World predate Larry Sanders yeah yeah but I mean um but the way the way that yes absolutely yeah. um. But that was, I guess, all on TV. Like it was all in the yeah, same. Yeah, I mean, kind of I get grain. that. But even though, even when that sketch would come up, you'd see the uh, the title, the card of the guy yeah. with the camera, and it would say, you know, public access Aurora. Well, and and, it would, and here it would have that sort of yeah, public access feel to it, Definitely, even in that, yeah. you know. So yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, it, to me, it's all it's all part of the same pie, you know. Mm-hmm. But um. But yeah, Mike Myers is definitely at the forefront of it, and I love I love in this early scene how we go back to the roots of Wayne's World as you know a parody of of public access cable because mm-hmm. you know they talk about Plant World and Cooking World. Yeah, um, yeah, right, I just, yeah I, right. <laughs> I think it's excellent. Um, yeah, all the all was the it one of. Not the KKK, but wasn't one a uh, white supremacy show? Yes, <laughs> that got 
got booted off or something like that. So then the, th- yeah. the times all worked for their Absolutely, for their switching. Yeah. That was funny. Yeah. So I think that you know, and and that's the opening scene in the movie is already shot through with amazing stuff, and we haven't really got started yet. I know. <laughs> right. And you know, in very sim, you know, in in what you say, what you said about it works as a narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, here we get the roots of of an of a of a good narrative, emotional through line that'll take us through the rest of the movie. Right. Wayne, because you know, he's re- saying Dupassage, directly into Ray. camera. Yeah, I mean, he's like, talking about you know growing up. Growing, he said, <laughs> yeah, growing, growing up. You know, this movie's going to be about me growing up. Um, and we also you very efficiently by starting with the with them filming the TV show, we show that uh, it's going to be Wayne and Garth again, and we're going to have the crew from the original. Yeah. movie as well it's like the, we're getting the band back together for sure so this is that that's the the legacy part of the movie taken care of um but we're also told that this movie is going to have its own story mm-hmm. uh and i you know the same i said this with the mike myers i, I my, myers movie his movies work best when there is this emotional through line that you can grab onto mm-hmm. and this movie has that from minute one yeah I felt like, well, I'll save it till later in the, the okay. episode. But you think that dis- you think that dissipates? I don't think it dissipates, but I mean it's such a minor quibble. But when he breaks up with Cassandra, I'm thinking this is this is a necessity of the screenplay. Yeah. As opposed to they've made me feel as though Wayne would break up with her in that moment. I can't imagine Wayne breaking up with the who the person of his dreams. I I can't imagine anyone breaking up because every Steve time Ferreira he sees her on stage, he hears Dreamweaver, and like, you know he's. I can't I can't imagine anyone breaking up with Tia Carrera under any circumstances. Right. I literally just now finished watching an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm from two thousand and six. She has not aged a day. Right. Anyway, that's just weird man stuff. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> don't want to don't clunk, clunk this well, up with my... Speaking of the beginning of this movie, now, I don't know if... I think it was an acting choice. I hope it was an acting choice when we meet Christopher Walken. Oh, it's a choice. The the nose? I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know it's a choice. They cast him for a reason. All I know is he kind of puts his finger to his nose that made me think... Christopher Walken is telling is telling us this guy does cocaine. Yeah. Oh no, that's exactly. I had exactly the same note. Yeah. It's like the it's like like Mark Maron in, in Glow is like you know he he, <laughs> right. he came to the set and told them all how this guy would get his coke. You know, it's right. like oh a hundred percent. Um, well, I I well before that I do, I just wanna I just wanna comment on what I think is one of the most perfect comic set pieces in the movie which is the drive-through oh yeah i mean talk about a perfect marriage of visual and verbal comedy everything absolutely this is one of my masterclass scenes it's just (laughs) it's using all the elements of cinema to get the best possible joke and a joke that evolves and changes as it goes on i mean it's just and yeah it's you look at it from the outside and you go that is so simple Mm-hmm. Why is that so funny? It's so simple, but simple because it seems simple because it's effortless. 
Yeah. And yet, you when you break it down, you're like, you switched in the middle from visual to verbal comedy, and then you switched to a character joke, and then you went... Well, and for the benefit of the audience, explain what we're talking about in case they didn't ta- watch it before <laughs> we're... We're... Ta- we're talking about uh, uh, Wayne uh, ordering food from a, um, a drive through yeah, uh, uh, which, speaking which is into a, a head, speaking into like a giant head model, and he's cutting out every other word to try and get a free meal because there's a sign there that says if if we don't get your order right, the meal is for free. But <laughs> the punchline is that the that the animatronic head uh, hears everything perfectly clearly and repeats back and repeats the order. their order back to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and after that, we get to the Aerosmith gig. Um, now, I don't care for Aerosmith, never have done, never will. I love this sequence. We'll add to the long I did list not of mind... things you don't like or well, I know. <laughs> but I, I think I think there's a lot of people who'd be on my side when it comes to Aerosmith. Um uh less you know, it's it's not a Judy Dench where everyone's like, What's the fuck's wrong with you? I think some people would be like, Yeah, Aerosmith a bit little bit mock rock. Um but uh he just I don't know what it is about Mike Myers movies and integrating musical performances. Right. Done so. We had deftly. this with Alice Cooper in the first right. movie. And there's just Millie something. Ab- <laughs> <laughs> but in like there's two different ways in which for me the sequence works. One is that it's it's a musical performance which is actually really well filmed. It was in San uh, Diego, by the way. Really? Yeah. They were actually performing in San Diego and they got, I I can't remember if if they waited until the whole concert was done and then Aerosmith came back out and they got what they needed for the movie, maybe. I think it went like that. But it feels like, but that's it. It it captures the feeling of a real concert. Yeah. Um, And that's one of my biggest bugbears in in movies is that... um, it you know when whenever you have like a concert it's like it feels it always feels too quiet right that there's too Same much with space sports between movies. people and that's just not how concerts are you know like you and for some reason I didn't feel that here but also the quality of gags dog oh, the in pizza the middle guy? of all this the the pizza guy the the crowd the surfing mo- pizza guy God setting fire to a, a, a metal <laughs> yeah. guy's hair, and it just—I mean, it looks da- pretty dangerous. Maybe it that's really, why it's yes. so funny. But I have just, a note here that says head this guy must have been paid extra, flames. or it's a or it's a wig or whatever. But yeah, I was—you know—I I have a note here that says, "Man, they really let that go." And it's just like it's—it's it's, you know when you get great, what I call would call pop cinema, like. You know, it brings together what's great about music videos and music concerts and movies, or you mm-hmm. know, the Beatles, the Beatles movies, and when they're working. This is what it feels like to me. And I don't like Aerosmith. I I, I would not pay money to see these people, <laughs> and yet I'm just loving every second of this. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then then we get into uh, yeah, Christopher Walken, and get from us from a sequel angle. This is hilarious because we're we're doing the same storyline again yeah this is exactly what happened with rob lowe in the last movie of course except he was a tv producer now christopher walken's a record producer and yet at the same time it's an inversion because the shtick with rob lowe was that he 
was smarmy, but you thought he was a good guy. Yeah. Whereas now that they've recast him as Christopher Walken, you have no <laughs> illusion that this guy, that this, guy. this guy is the villain of the piece. And that, <laughs> and that, you know, he's upfront about being the villain to everyone he meets. Right, right. Like he does not schmooze them at all. <laughs> he and calls I him think... Dwayne. <laughs> it's sort of, it's just sort of perfect. Yeah. Um, but we're still backstage and we see, and I was delighted to see Bob Odenkirk and Robert Schmeagle as oh. the nerds. Oh my gosh. Cause I, this... I completely forgotten about that. And when they walked up. Yeah. I, I just, I was delighted. And for those of you who don't know, Bob Odenkirk is Saul Goodman from Breaking Bad. Also Mr. Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Schmeagel is Triumph, the insult comic dog. Correct. And uh, was the showrunner of the Dana Carvey show. Yes. Uh, which there's a great documentary on Hulu about. Murderer's um, Row of of comedy people writing that show. Exactly, yeah. And both this and the, and the when you hear Harry Shearer in the car on the way over, yeah. it just made me think, it's like, wow, this this might be... It might be better to watch this film in 2022 mm-hmm. because now you have a sense of of what the people in it can do right better than you had then. I had the same feeling when they walked up. I thought, you know, all these guys found each other early yeah. on and they all yes. knew, you know. Yeah. And it just grow. It just it kinda... was a delight to see that 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 yeah that they had all found each other. They had found their their people and, and had carved out their their performance lives kind you know with each other and even the content of that scene the fact that you know there, there there's a hierarchy in nerddom yeah is really interesting because there's a number of ways in which this movie is really prophetic mm-hmm. like this is what i mean it just what it says what it said in 1993 has just grown and grown and become more true. And one of the because you now know, it's, it's like, a badge of honor to say I'm a nerd. It's a badge of but when it but wasn't back then. But you realize that Wayne and Garth see themselves as a different class of nerd as, from, right, from exactly. this kind of nerd. And that's why I, nerd I don't think they see themselves as, at, as nerds at all. You know? Yeah. That right. You exactly. Know, they're, they're heavy metal nerds, not recognizing that they're heavy metal nerds. But when you think today of like you know the the deep set divisions between different kinds of fandom, yeah, it you just it's like it was all here, like it was it was all here <laughs> right. for the taking. Yeah, Mike my, my, Myers figured it out before anyone else did. Yeah, and there's I mean there's numerous examples of that, um, and you know, shortly after this we get in our first uh, vision quest. Well, I was going to say, so why don't we take a break? Okay. And then we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, what Wayne has to do. All right. Right after this. Does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie? Have you been sitting on your couch for weeks? Nay, have you been sitting on there for months? Well, it's time for you to get back in shape. Check out 2AT Fitness. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. 2AT Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. 
She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. Go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here talking about Wayne's World 2, one of our three, well, technically four, but we're going to talk about three and reissue a fourth, 1993 sequels. Hmm. We haven't talked about this. We didn't talk about, so it's directed by Steven Sergic. Oh, yeah. Give us the uh, statistic yeah. corner. Come on. Yeah. He's done nothing else except television. <laughs> so, so strange. to me. Directorially, this movie's yeah. on point. So, and I, I, I mean, I think I'm Sad. right. I, I, I look at him on IMDb. I literally do not see any other movies. Just television, good television. You know, plenty of uh, varying different kind of yeah. things. But uh, maybe I mean, you know, the other possibility is that Mike Myers is doing everything and just needed a marquee name you know yeah but if if, if he'd get, never done anything before he's not really a marquee name is he no true so i don't i don't understand it i i have to say like i was always impressed and i think comedy direction is one of the hardest yeah. things you can do and at no point did i did i think he fluffed any aspect no. of that and well I don't know if it's famously, but but fans of the series, at the very least, know that the first movie was directed by Penelope uh, Spheres. I don't know how to say her last name. But mm. uh, as I recall reading, she did not come back because, and we've heard this before with Mike Myers, she didn't want to deal with Michael Myer, Mike Myers. <laughs> Yeah. Or Michael Myers. <laughs> that was a, that was a slip. Like, either I'm going to get condescended <laughs> right, to or stabbed by a guy with an Asian fetish, or I'm going to get yeah. stabbed in the heart. <laughs> so there's that. Well, maybe I mean maybe that's it. Maybe maybe you know it's maybe it's just about getting a director who knows how to take orders. Yeah, right. So. This movie and had sixty with this kind of quality. Right. I'm not complaining. This movie had sixty percent. This your movie art. had sixty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, that's low. Compared that's to horrifically low. the first movie, which I believe had like I think it's seventy eight percent. And that speaks to how people immediately dismiss sequels out of hand when they should be paying atten close attention right. to them. Well, and the other thing, so this leads me. Like they increased the budget by twenty million dollars. This movie had a budget of forty million dollars. Yeah. Opening weekend of thirteen point five, only forty eight point one in the USA, like forty eight point forty eight million one hundred ninety seven thousand in the USA, and then I believe 
48,198,000 in the world. I always love it when that happens. Mm. But um it's interesting. I mean, that's always interesting. I think when it comes to Mike Myers, I have a feeling a lot of my um my fellow Brits picked up the slack because because you know, he's 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 British. I mean, he's British right. Canadian, but his parents are from, are from Liverpool and I don't know. We I think I think British film goers relate to him. Also, he relates to us. I mean, he he understands comedy in a very transatlantic way mm-hmm. that a lot of uh, a lot of comedi- American and Canadian comedians simply don't simply can't get right. to. So, I can see why in in Europe and specifically Britain. Um, but I also one of my biggest notes for this movie. You referenced this as we were going to commercial. We we go to the dream sequence. Mm-hmm. This movie has a $40 million budget, which may have hurt it in the yeah. sense of... I think that's why people think of this movie as a failure, because it didn't make as much money as the first one, and it barely eked out past its budget. But that money is on screen. Yeah. They're walking on a... You know, in a... Like... In a desert. They're there. Him and his half-naked Indian friend. Along with but Jim I, Morrison. I sort of think, like... Because I, I, when, when, when Matt Aldrich was on, on the show, you know, he, he talked about how he, he thinks with comedy, money is the enemy of mm-hmm. comedy. Um, I think I probably agree with him in, in general, but there are some notable exceptions. This is one and, of them. And this would be yeah. one of them. This would be one of them, but part of it is like you can. <laughs> it's not it's like the they bake in the idea of film economics into the movie. <laughs> when they go to when they go to uh, they fly to England. Oh yeah, and it's a couple of doubles seen from behind who look nothing like right. them with voiceovers from Mike Myers and Dana Carvey. I mean that. I mean that's more than just economics. That they're, they're talking about film convention right. and film language. But I don't know that. That all. It's like. It's like. Well, you know, we're they're not because they're also commenting on sort of. Yes, we're, we're using we're using money in a very um, imaginative and inventive way. Right, but we're also we're talking about how other movies have can budgets. do this in a contrived way, trying to fake yeah. you out. Right. So, and I love all of that. I I think it's I I think as I said, you know, I think it's a work of genius, one of the great first film works of postmodernism. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I think one. Oh, I had um, a question for you. Yeah, because I think okay. it's right around this. You know, basically this this is when we're finding out he he we have the dream sequence, and Wayne finds out that he's got to start Wayne Stock. Wayne Stock, yeah, and he goes. This is the other the other narrative strand that, of the movie that we can right, latch onto as, as, as viewers. Yeah, but like I said, you know, I think I think that strand falls in and out in the second act quite a mm. bit for stuff that I love. You yeah. know, the stuff with Kim Basinger, all you know. <laughs> so it, you're yeah. you know, it, I, I, again, it's a quibble, but. But well, it's, it's, it's my a, question for you yeah. was they go to the permit office 
and we essentially have the same joke as yeah uh goldfinger or gold, gold member mem- goldfinger gold member except for instead of a mole we got the eye yeah i was wondering which one you found to be funnier do you have to even ask <laughs> i just think it's, it's this one another another perfectly acted Perf- sorry, perfectly executed sequence yeah. of gags. But and it's again, funny to me that it's that the ability- same gag that we didn't find funny in that they nailed movie, it the first but time it completely round. works in this movie. I think that's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a, di- it's a different time. I suppose it's somewhat of a different kind of movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think... I think everything is clicking here, which helps, but it's all, I mean, it's the fundamentals of comedy. Right. But applied with, you know, as with kind of pinpoint precision. I think that's what's lacking Maybe. in there. And I guess, I guess when I think about the mole joke in Goldmember, it's like what I remember is that there's an ability to move beyond the central joke. Yeah. Of everyone can't stop staring at the mole. Whereas you know here, there's much more to it. That you know that they 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 expand beyond yeah. the joke just enough uh, for it to build to something. And what one of the great things about the way comedy works in this movie is that the comedy builds. Yes. Like this is like an open textbook on how you take a joke from it from its roots to its climax. Mm-hmm. And they do this again and again in the movie. And in one, I think, one time I think they do it better than any other movie I've seen. But certainly here, and, you know, it's, it's sometimes simply a matter of going, well, here's the visual part of this gag, and now we're going to shift into the verbal part of this yes, gag. It's right. the same gag, but it doesn't seem like the same gag because we're a different kind of humor. You're right. It's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Um, well, I want to just briefly it's... go back... What I like is sometimes you don't you don't realize say how many idioms we have involving the word i until until this exactly. comes along, explo- you know? Yeah. It's it's like it's it's in a to- in a completely positive way. Right. It's like watching someone wring out a comedy sponge. <laughs> To the point where it is absolutely dry. There is no point. There's no more joke you can make. And that's a very fine line. Mm -hmm. Because if you fuck that up, you get some of the qualities of the Austin Powers movies where it's like, we we can't stop making the same joke. You know, the joke ended two minutes ago. We're still making it. But it never feels like that here. I think it's just about knowing when to stop. Knowing when when the the scene's over. You're right. It probably goes on longer in in the gold member as well. Well, it's a runner as well. Yeah. This, this isn't, isn't a runner. runner. Maybe that's the trick. This is like this is a set piece, you know. Um, also, and it's also the end of it's the end of the scene. Yes. There's a whole other scene in there. There's other right. stuff happening. And also, Kevin um, Pollock, hysterical. No, oh, he's so good. <laughs> he's he's so, funny. so 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 good. <laughs> um, I, I I just to so you mentioned that you know he he goes into a dream into a yes. dream. In which there's a uh, a half naked Native American and Jim Morrison, uh, who are his spirit guides, 
That's all and we have. This this was a this was one of the moments where I you know, nineteen ninety three was all yes. over this, because it's like that early nineties fetishization of Native American culture. Plus, well, plus we get right into early nineties fetish- fetishization of nineteen sixties Eastern mysticism right. in yes. one. But also, it reminds me of it reminded me of Naked Gun thirty three and a third, who wanted to do. Mm. The Untouchables bit in two and a half, but felt like they weren't far enough removed. I have exactly the same. Note. And this movie hits right the like in the in the pocket of referencing Field of Dreams, and that's yeah. my note. If you book them, they will come. You know, it's it's like four years is a good amount of right. waiting. <laughs> That's it. You've you got to know, know how long exactly to wait before long, you make the right. reference. And four years is pretty good. I think that was I think that was about the same length of time between Untouchables and Naked Gun 33 and the right. third as well. It was in that range. But you're getting sure. that kind of stuff, but you're also getting, you know, say, what, late 60s and in the, in the 70s martial arts references as well? Yeah, I mean, he's... I would say his go-to, Mike Myers' go-to is 60s, 70s yeah. pop culture. But... Uh, like you said, he clearly has an Asian fetish. Batman. Batman 66, James Bond. But for everything. Uh, <laughs> you know? Rock music of the yeah. 60s. Um, with Jim Morrison and, and uh, um, you know, Grateful Dead. Um roadie you know roadie culture woodstock mm-hmm. itself which is you know the the through line of the movie is that we're recreating woodstock um but in in addition to that like dense media literacy that always impresses me about mike myers's comedy i think it's this python-esque note of the yeah. absurd that he puts in that well, puts him over the top when, so when he meets cassandra's father yeah. and how quickly James Hong says, I must fight you, to me yes. was was just perfect. The fact that they the, were the first devolving instance... into a fight so quickly and yeah. then bits within the fight, like answering the telephone. Uh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. And and what is it? What is the subject of conversation? The Sports Illustrated football phone, which, <laughs> which comes yeah, back right. again and again. <laughs> Because there are no throwaway yeah. gags in this movie, everything matters. Because it's a f- it's a perfectly self contained piece yeah. of work. Um, the first the first instance of that that I noted was earlier on in the movie when uh, Wayne is ran- is is doing basically the usual suspects <laughs> in the um, recording studio. Like he, what he, you know, Christopher Walken is asking him who what bands are there, and he's just naming things that he sees right. in the room. And then Rip Taylor. Is there for no reason, <laughs> just, and he says, just "Rip Taylor." <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I was like, "Yeah, a, a, again, a lesser movie, a lesser comedian would not think to go to that right. level. Would think to go to that left field." And it's also the usual suspects, which is yet to come out, and he's done, right. done it in a movie in 1993. <laughs> it's insane. It it is it's it's absolutely insane. And when we get, I mean, when we get to London, talk talk about like a niche understanding of like 
cult cinema and cult comedy cinema. Mm-hmm. When we go to London, they go to get a roadie that Jim Morrison has recommended to right. them, who is both played by and is essentially Ralph's Bra- Ralph Brown's character from With Nail and I. <laughs> right. I know if you've seen no. that movie. It's the is same it? character. Dell is based on a... Uh, a, a drug dealer character from um, Bruce Robinson's With Nail and I with Richard. See, I e. just Grant. remember him as eighty-five from Alien Three, and he's also uh, um, oh, what's the name of the guy who says everything that's happening in uh, the Phantom Menace? Rick Olay <laughs> says everything. <laughs> no, he does. Johnny they talk about this on Star Wars Minute. He says, it's, "Yeah, he says what he sees when they when they're going to when they're going to the planet." He says the whole. <laughs> The whole planet is one big city. <laughs> you rewatch the Phantom Menace. Rick Olay is only there to say what's happening on screen. He's for the, he's there for the blind people right. in the audience. Um, but this is like this is like a kind of JW JW Pepper style revival <laughs> of a character in Superman right. Two because this is exactly the same character. He looks the same. He talks the same. He's the same kind of character. One is a roadie, one is a drug dealer. Um, that is so niche. Mm-hmm. Like, that's ridiculously niche. But what they're talking about is... Again, talk about prophetic. Jokes about Keith Richard yeah. dying. That's our bread and butter in comedy right. now. Probably not in 1993. Jokes about bands that keep touring when they're too old to be mm-hmm. doing it. I mean, that is just incredible. And it also lets me know that this that, that Mike Myers and this screenplay understands what rock music really is in a way that is reminiscent of Spinal Tap or like people who actually un like they don't just go for the surface gags. Yeah. They they make the jokes about like real life rock and roll. Like right, 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 right. of popular music. It's not just like, oh look at their hair and they're all fucking each other it's like well there are those jokes but (laughs) (laughs) but we move beyond that um ed o'neill oh (laughs) i've got notes on ed o'neill and he's in the original movie right yes but i see ed o'neill in this movie and i think why isn't ed o'neill in fucking everything (laughs) but again this is where mike myers is ahead of the game yeah because I, I do re- I do remember there's a time where Ed O'Neill was the was the guy from Married with Children and that was it that right. was the limit of it and then everyone found out that he was you know this Broadway class actor right. who came from the Steppenwolf Theater David Mamet started putting him in all his movies sure. and it's like whoa he's a dramatic actor and a good one at that and then this taps both sides of mm-hmm. that and then he goes on to do Modern, Modern Family, Family he's and, a, you know right. he's another you know another sitcom great in a different sitcom. This is all of that at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like everything you need to know about Ed O'Neill in what is basically a cameo. Yes. Uh, this and I'll I'll go so far as to say also in Ford Fairlane. Yes. Where he's the cop that <laughs> clearly this, wants to be a a rock star. And this is this is also interesting in regard to sequels like there's a lot of recasting here and surrogacy and all that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. When it matters that you're consistent, they do it. They right, right. And the thing that struck me was, and this is again, this is so such a nuanced thing. 
when you see that the record producer is the yes. same guy from the end of the last film. From I'm the like, end of the movie. Of course, because, you know, the fact that that, that guy's Tuddy from Goodfellas and he has a ponytail, you're not going <laughs> to forget this guy. Right. If you recast this guy, you'd notice. <laughs> he is not an unremarkable looking human being. Yeah. And I just You might I, not know his name, but you know his face. It's like it's fine that we're doing Chris Walken instead of Rob Lowe, you know, cuz that's what sequels do. But at the same sure. time, when it when you need legacy, we'll give you legacy. It's also fine you have Chris Farley in both movies but as different people. Yes. <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's a, an and and you know, a nuanced understanding of how sequels work. Yeah. Um I, we talked. We talked about Jurassic Park. Um, yes. <laughs> the next, like, one of my favorite gags in the movie is the Kenny G dentist gag. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, but on an analytical level, I you know I I, I just I just want to say, again, a simple, somewhat obvious punchline, but you're using all the production value and visual flair of cinema to make it happen. Yeah. Like the pan over, all right. the extras in the audience say, yeah. <laughs> who are enjoying Kenny G so much because they're stupid white people. And then there's Garth. Garth getting his tooth drilled. <laughs> it's fucking great. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know, oh, I think mercy. they're. I mean, compared to other Mike Myers movie, they're Mike Myers movies. They're pretty sparing on callbacks. To jokes from the original movie. Yeah, like, I a think lot that's, of original a, I think that's a thing that developed differently once we got into the Austin Powers movies. It has to be because even the callback, even the callbacks they have are enough of a variation that you you don't yeah. see it as the same gag. Like we do the Calgon product placement here, and they don't go to town on the product placement joke in the way they did in the last movie. Right, but the point is made, and you remember. You remember that joke, but you also appreciate well, also, this new joke. When I saw it in this movie, it delighted me. Yeah, it's 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 a lateral what I call a lateral gag. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. It's not dimin. There's no diminishing return. It's just it's lat. Right. But you know, there's a there's right. a there's a, it connects two gags in one line. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I'm I'm just aghast at how how they again ring in that comedy sponge. A few vinyl records. Mike mm-hmm. Myers is going through them and he's got a joke for all of them. Right. It's like watching Rodney Dangerfield. It's like, yeah. this, or Robin Williams, <laughs> you know, it's like, this guy is just coming out of him like mm-hmm. breath. Um, and then we get into... Well, but what's funny is it's always completely in character too. Yes. So it's yes. different than Robin Williams, you know? It's better than Robin Williams, yeah. Right. And, and Rodney Dangerfield, if you, yeah. if you if you want to draw me on it. But it's the same kind of level. It's like, can this guy just can't stop making jokes. Yeah. And good jokes. But this is better. Because, as you say, it's a it's a film character rather than just a, a person mm-hmm. who can't play anyone apart from themselves. We know, like, Mike Myers is relatively a, a chameleon in that sense. Like, he's, yeah, he's right, developed right. distinct characters distinct from himself. He has played a character as a game show host that's right <laughs> you know yeah I well mean, he's come on and i guess i mean that's partly his training at, at saturday night live i suppose when you have mm-hmm. to you have to come up with a different character multiple times a week yeah sure uh every week for a year i mean that that's that's you're not gonna you can't do samey there 
or you get fired. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's take a second break and then we'll come back and we'll finish up. How about that? All right. I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. We're back once again, everyone. Talking about... The Steven Surgic Wayne's World 2. Mike Myers! Yeah, which, <laughs> if he actually directed it, should have gotten him more work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or at least, uh, you know, work with um, producers who who are demanding. Right. He would have been a good Michael Bay collaborator. Mm-hmm. All right, Tom. I mean, we've both been gushing about this movie quite a bit, and mm-hmm. yet I still rank <laughs> the Hot Shot sequel above this yeah. one. So I just don't think it's as well made a movie in the end. I just think it's so on point, though. <laughs> I just love that about it. So for me, where this movie fell short for me... Within the narrative, like I said, the second act goes on for a long time. The second act is, you know, like 45 minutes. And then the third act is about 10 to 15 minutes Mm. where we finally get to Wayne Stock and things are going to happen. And I'll go as far as saying that I think I think you could trim five minutes off this movie, make it a solid 90 minute movie. And I think you could lose one of the vision quests in order to do that. Agreed. There's a there's a good one or two many of those. Yeah. It just felt like uh, as though, hey, we got forty million dollars. We're gonna film all the scenes we can in the desert. Yeah. But and then on top of that I just I, Wayne Stock mm. for me just like I said, falls short within the narrative mm. in the second act. We're we come in and out of Wayne talking about trying to get it done. Yeah. But the things we're replacing it with are hysterical and great, but... Yeah. But what was a perfect movie for the first 30 minutes became less Mm. so of a perfect movie in that second act. For me. Fair. I... I I hear you. 
I, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I hear you, but I, I don't care. No, I do care. And I think it's I think it's I see exactly what you're saying. And to a lesser extent, I agree with mm-hmm. you. Um, the narrative part about with Cassandra, too, just falls short for me. I wonder whether I wonder whether, you know, in, in any kind of self-referential movie, it's hard. It's hard to take what you're saying when you're saying hot shots. I know. Might do this better. Because in any kind of self-referential movie, there's a trade-off between the kind of linear narrative and getting all we want out of the pastiche side right. of it. And I think this, oh, like overall, in the big scheme of things, this movie has that just right. Um, and I never feel like the narrative is slowed down uh, too much. The, also, the <laughs> okay. fact that it's yeah. a, also the fact Caveat that it's a there. sequel... Also, the fact that it's a sequel and it has that kind of desire to sort of remake the original. So we, all the Cassandra stuff plays out pretty much the same way it does in the original movie, but that that's done in a very self-aware way. But that absolutely interferes with the progress of the of the Wayne Stock yeah. narrative. But it leads to funny uh, shit. But I, li- I like the village so people. So much funny I shit. I like the village people scene. Uh, my favorite scene in the movie. Really? By a mile. I think My it's favorite so scene funny. probably in any comedy movie. By the time they come together and start running down the street, because <laughs> yes. you you could possibly miss it. If well, you're if that's what's beautiful yeah. about it. It because it, it starts off at first of all, it starts off as a mission impossible game. Yeah, right. Which I'm already fine with. Like if that was what I'm like I'm like sold. But again, sold. before Mission Impossible movies start coming out. Yeah, I know. He's on the he's on the cusp of everything, yeah. Mike Myers. It seems, um, but what that but that's a distraction. They're setting up a gag that you can't yeah, see, right? <laughs> by making you think it's about it's a Mission Impossible pastiche. Just the sheer fun of them running away from the uh, running away from Christopher Walken oh. to surf music, like. It feels like we're in like a Beatles movie also, or a Beach Boys also, movie. Also, also watching Christopher Walken run at full speed. Yeah, just in it, in and of itself is both remarkable and funny. <laughs> and and here's here's a, something that is kind of again quite a nuanced thing, but I think puts this over other similar set pieces that I've seen like this. When they go into the toolbox, which is the the <laughs> the, the gay club that um, uh, you know, they just that, find uh, themselves in, up. yeah, yeah, it's the right song playing, yeah, right? Like it's actually the song you would get in this kind of bar. It's not caricatured. It's not Hollywood gay club. It's a re. It's like it feels <laughs> right. like a real place. Right. Like Mike Myers has actually been in one of these places or someone, whoever the production designer is like, nah, the, the DJ table's here. This is a song that's playing. Mm-hmm. This is what the guys look like. And and then, you know, to build that to the YMCA number. Right. It's just it's just a masterclass in how you take you build a joke to its climax. Yeah. To me, and then you add in the dream Native American, who's from a totally different, port- different yeah, joke. You're right. <laughs> but then you realize that how much this is planned, like how planned and organized this movie is, because we know we can bring him into that to make the to complete the village people joke. Mm-hmm. 
because well, he's the missing element of that. It's like a because, pieces in a yeah. jigsaw puzzle. What I love about <laughs> having him in this scene is it's a bridge to the very end of the movie, too, oh. where Rip Taylor shows up. <laughs> yes. And so Wayne thinks that he's the only person that can see the half-naked Indian man. Yeah. And Rip yeah. Taylor's, you know... Yeah, says whatever he uh, it, you know. Because the humor, the humor uh, in this movie has a plan. These are not random jokes. The flow of it has been thought out meticulously, and you know, I made me think. Like I don't, I'm, I haven't seen the original Wayne's World in a long time. I definitely will after yeah, after we, we watch too. this series. And I'm not going to compare the two at yeah. all, except to say, I think this scene should be as iconic as Bohemian Rhapsody is. Right. And I don't know. Well, you know, know what's interesting not, to except me? Except that it's in a sequel. I kept wondering about this because what I remembered this movie trying to do, maybe it was just a music video. Because I thought mm. I remembered the closing credits song as the song, um, the Pat Benatar song. Yeah. I thought I remembered that being the Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody song of this movie. But it must have just been the music video. They right. must have done a music video, like a reissue of that song with yeah. Wayne and Garth. Because I remember, I think I remember the music video as in the movie. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't like it as much as Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody. But it's not even in the movie. So right. anyway. But now you have, you have this YMCA issue. does work. <laughs> It's perfect, yeah. and it, and again, it feels like even in a small way, it reignited the popularity of that song. I I don't know. I I, I don't know if that was a given in nineteen ninety three. Right. You know, every shitty discotheque you went into would play that at the end of the night. I don't yeah. know. And I'm not sure because um, I know. You know when we have, Del Preston talking like training the group yeah because we also we've been talking about what in a reference to full metal jacket well not just that but also an officer and a gentleman an officer and a gentleman yes. yet another 1982 film wow yeah interesting i also thought but, I mean, again, we're talking the... about the reference points for mike myers yeah and we're talking 60s we're talking 70s we're now we're talking 80s I mean, yeah. you know, so like you said, the knowledge that he possesses. And that's the essence of great postmodernism is that it it, 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 it cherry picks yeah. from any every era. Classic contemporary right. all dissolve into one uh, one new thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what he's got go going for him here. Another an, another uh, element where media literacy makes a huge difference is there's a joke in that roadie training about uh he when Dell starts to tell a story about he says you know here's your cyanide pill <laughs> and right. i remember when everyone was machine you know here's your machine guns and it's like that's a funny gag just in and of itself if you know about altamont and how violent music festivals in the 60s are <laughs> that's twice as funny four times amazing. as amazing and i mean he this this leads into this is where we get the bless you um changing of the weather tom i can't go from rain to 70 degrees jeez don't don't date our podcast 
as if you'd be able to tell. Right. I, I'll date our podcast. We're in the middle of global warming. How about that? <laughs> Before the world ended. How about that? Um, this is where, like, when we get into uh, their radio appearance, I began to think, there's a comic film legend around every corner yeah, of this right. movie. Yeah, right, yes. It's like, first Drew Barrymore... Then, fucking is Harry it just Shira. me, by the way, or doing great accent work? Yeah, I thought she was fantastic. No slouch. No slouch. Um, this is where he does his old Dick Van Dyke yeah. show. When we get into when I we mean, see Harry like, Shearer, when the but the like the, the the joke is that he's called handsome Dan, but he's not handsome, and, and then Ted the guy McGinley. that you think is going to be ugly is handsome, <laughs> yeah. right? But and that's great. Like I'm not sniffing at that. But what struck me in the scene was that when I saw Harry Shearer, I thought, oh, there's literally no one in the world who could do this better. Right, exactly. This guy has been a DJ and a voiceover actor in real life. Mm -hmm. He's also played DJs in The Simpsons and Spinal Tap. (laughs) Right. I mean, you could spend decades looking for someone who could do the job better than (laughs) Harry Shearer and you would never find it. And I'm just bowled well, over also, by the class of it what all. amounts to 120 seconds of screen time, Harry Shearer goes out of his way. To me, it's it it, it was like Harry Shearer did this all on his own. His look. Yeah. <laughs> his look, his sound. Everything I mean, about it's... it. Again, it's just one of those things that hits the nail right on the head, makes that scene fly in a way it might not otherwise. Because, Absolutely. Like and you said, you have the exact right person at the exact no right one. time doing it exactly right. How often do you watch a movie and you go, there's literally not, there, there's no one else who can do right. this. <laughs> like, in a finite sense. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't so out of context, my quotable would have absolutely been, oh, they keep getting closer. Yeah. <laughs> You have to put that in the context of the scene yeah. to be funny. But again, I think that is, that's like <laughs> Harry Shearer is just in his own little DJ world and he understands it better than anyone ever has. Well, and what's great is because, because he's the, lived it and he's parodied it. He's doing his own parody <laughs> while still within the narrative. The characters yeah. are realizing what's going on with the character and start fucking with him in the, in the way, in the classic way they, those two characters do even on SNL when it yeah. was just a skit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So everything about it works. <laughs> it's just, it's, <laughs> it's phenomenal. It is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and I, we, we have a tonight show appearance here, which was another point in the movie where I was like, I was like, this is stuff that these kind of movies get wrong. When they try and reproduce mm-hmm. like real, real media, as we know it, right. most movies would get this wrong. This looks exactly like the Tonight right. Show. It's like this. This doesn't happen in every movie. Most movies get this really easy. What you would think would be well, easy the part stuff, of it that's really of great is wrong. I, I, I'm just assuming they filmed it on the Tonight Show set. Yeah, but the part and, that they get right is Christopher Walken standing off because he. He's like yes. Artie. It's Larry Sanders. Yes. Yeah, exactly. They think they think they're on a Larry Sanders level right. of detail when it comes to. And I, I felt the same earlier on in the movie. 
and I can't remember a scene in which some when which there's a scene going on of people watching a television show and a scene going on on the television show. This is when Mike Myers puts the torch under his neck and says, don't tie and stop me, I'm the leprechaun. <laughs> I was going to bring the leprechaun like, voice into it. Both sides of this conversation are funny. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen right. that. Like, I, I don't, like, I've seen it, bef- like, even in the original Wayne's World, the funny part is what you're seeing on screen, not what they're watching. But the stuff that um, Tia Carrera and um, Chris Walken. Walken are doing is very it's funny. funny. And, and what, what's great what, is you get to watch her What Wayne and Garth are doing is fucking boyfriend. beyond funny. Wait, what'd you say? And what Wayne and Garth are doing is is just is. I mean, that's my big takeaway for that. Uh, like the the number of times I put a torch under my under my face and gone, "Don't try and stop me! I'm the leprechaun." <laughs> um, they just do. I mean, and it's interesting because <laughs> this is like. Whenever you think that there's an excess or a cliche somewhere, the movie comments on it, right? We get the first one of that is like the gratuitous nudity of the half naked Native American guy. Right. Um, then they start but, to well, say because, so, so late we get on early in the... on when we get Dell saying the thing. What, what's he say about the exposed butthole or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> Was that a bit gratuitous? And then, you know, they start, as the movie goes on, they say things are happening so late in the film. Um, we get the call back to the chicken melon glass yeah. slapstick scene. But what's great about that just... is it's been long enough that you forgot <laughs> You've about forgotten. it. Yes, 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 yes. Even though they told you at the time that, that this was going to be called back at some and point. Also, and say, I wonder if this is... Also, right after that, because you can see the graduate coming from a hundred miles away. You know that that's going to be the reference. And yet it still (laughs) works because he walks into the second Presbyterian church first. Even before that, because... Oh, we forgot about the good actor bit, too. Oh, yeah, no, uh, that's part of what I was about to say. But even even before that, just the (laughs) detail... Of having the um, having the Mrs. Robinson music disappear when it goes into a tunnel. Yes, the car goes yes, into a tunnel. you're right. And what struck me there is that the, not only is that like a great original joke to make in the middle of a pastiche, mm-hmm. it's something that the the uh, the, the, the graduate movie. as a movie might have done. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? To the point where I'm actually confusing it in my mind whether it's a reference to the graduate or whether this is an original joke just because it seems like exactly the kind of diegetic non-diegetic thing they would have done sure. in that movie so but and that's because Mike Myers understands what he's referencing mm-hmm. um and speaking about understanding what you're referencing replacing a day player actor with <laughs> Charlton Heston mid-scene it's perfect in so many ways. Well, what I the only way remarkable... it could have been more perfect. The only way it could have been more perfect if it was James Franciscus replaced <laughs> by John. <laughs> but that would only work oh, for us. That would have been great, meta. But but do you know what the best part of that is? Well, this I don't know if absolute best, but well, what I you look that guy up. You look that actor up on IMDb. That guy is a literal day right. player. 
you just get like nothing but 70s, 80s TV series in supporting roles. So not only, not, I mean, that joke would kind of work with one of their comedy buddies. But no, Mike Myers is saying, we are getting the guy who was in like three episodes of The Incredible yeah. Hulk. Like we're, get, we're getting so that the joke is sublime. Well, not just that. Everyone but everyone is doing their job. What I love is that they allow that actor to over emote. <laughs> and he knows exactly and how to do it. And that actor knows exactly he... <laughs> how to play that scene. Yes. For a laugh. But to be, but to uh, garner the necessity to be replaced. Yes. <laughs> he knows just how much to overact, yes. to take himself out of the scene, Ugh. and then Charlton Heston comes in, and and uh, it's it's exactly what it's. That's what's great. Where both actors are, are conforming to expectations, but they're nailing those expectations so well that it becomes transcendent in and of itself. Yes. Like he's like, it's like actually that's the best performance I've ever seen Charlton Heston give in anything. <laughs> right. And I, and I love Charlton Heston, but you know, clearly Mike Myers has taken them aside and goes like, "Here's the deal: we're not shitting on any of your performances here. We mm-hmm. are. This is a tribute to the kind of thing that Hollywood does. This for us having a movie in which there's a bunch of cameos. Like you can clear that everyone understands what they're doing. Yeah. At any given time. And then the another moment of genius in the sequence, which is like a really radical postmodern thing to do. We take out Simon and Garfunkel. We bring in the Lemonheads cover of Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. I mean, Tarantino did that. You'd be like, oh, my God, he's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's... Uh, and, you know, I've, I've never... I've always felt that, and this is, add this to the list of things where, of things I, I don't like that everyone else does. Never been a huge fan of The Graduate as a movie. I always thought it was a little bit overrated. Shit. <laughs> uh, oh, so I actually, so when I watch this, I think, yeah, there's definitely room for comic maneuver here. Mm-hmm. Like, Graduate's many things. You know, balls to the wall comedy, it ain't. Right. There's, you can get more laughs out of this. Well, and what does. I think is great, just as like you said with the second yeah. Presbyterian church. What I think church. is great Fantastic. is that for for those that know, and I'm sure Michael Mike Michael Mike Myers knows. <laughs> I can't stop. <laughs> but there's also a, a great parody of the Graduate on The Simpsons. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he's playing that exact scene, and yet yes. it's not the only joke. It's not the only exactly. Yeah. No one can stand the sound of grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I hear Mrs. Robinson now in my head, I go, no one can stand yeah. the sound of grandpa. Well, and, and of um, course I have, you know, you know, afterwards he gets Cassandra and they, they, Wayne stock is going to be a, a mild success. At least Aerosmith's going to show up as yeah. his Rip Taylor. <laughs> but again, we have Iron Eyes Cody humor as well. Well, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm 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 saving that for my credit check. Okay, but uh, I love I love the fact that you know we're we're able we talk about a happy ending. We're able to contain our own cliches in a self-referential screenplay framework mm-hmm. with the multiple endings. Um, which is also, you know, kind of a callback to 
not kind of, but a callback to the first movie. They have the Scooby-Doo. Yeah, it is. They, no, absolutely, know. yeah. Um, and that's another and then, thing this movie does so well. It has the jokes you expect to get from Wayne and Garth. Yeah. Say, for instance, Garth swinging at every woman that goes by. The swing joke. I I take I I take that out of the movie if I was making it today. I would today, yes. But at that time, think, what I what yeah. I'm, what I don't I'm, think there was an excuse even then. What, no, <laughs> probably not. But what I'm referencing is the jokes that you expect in a Wayne's World movie. Yeah. And then jokes outside of that. Completely. And that and that balance is perfect, because. Normally, a movie would would lean too heavily on the jokes you'd expect. Mm-hmm. And here, this movie doesn't. It's not That's in right. there a lot. No. No, it's that just Excuse enough. Excuse me, to baking sort of... powder. Excuse me, baking powder. Yeah, that kind of stuff. It's uh, we have our moment to sort of air out the catchphrases. Right. Just take them out, you know. When they're there, yeah, like, it's because the character them a little it's bit. because the character is still saying yeah. it. Right. And again, that's a very fine line, but again, I think yeah. this movie is on the right on the right side of that um line. And then Right, I, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie. I saw it twice in the cinema, by the way. <laughs> um <laughs> in nineteen ninety three. I can still remember my father saying, you want to go and see this again? (laughs) Yeah, I do. That's great. It's like, Groundhog Day is supposed to be good. No, I want to see this again. Um, (laughs) uh, But I still forget. I like in the beginning of the movie when Wayne and Garth are kept out of the uh, exclusive backstage area. Yeah, exactly. He says, you know, you know a lot of guys girlfriend's have girlfriends in there. in there. A lot of guys have girlfriends in there. Like, as I'm watching that, I go, I know this is important. I can't remember why. Mm-hmm. And then because it's the final joke, literally the final joke of the right. movie. And at Christopher Walken's you know, expense. At which Christopher Walken's expense, we reverse that, which is great. Um, and again, that just speaks to the through line of humor in this movie that you've seen in so many other areas. We haven't even talked about the runner of Dell's telling the same story yeah. about Ozzy Osbourne and the M&Ms, right. which is like, it's funny. It like the first time he says it is funny because it's a, a parody of like real life rock and roll stories. Right. It's partially based on the Va- Van Halen brown M&M yeah. story and a bunch of Ozzy Osbourne stories, which kind of float around the ether of um, rock criticism. Mm-hmm. But for then it to be he's telling everyone the same story well, over and that. over again. And then in the middle of the movie, without commentary at all, you see them separating M&Ms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the fact that we can keep we can keep falling back on this and yet you develop the joke at the same as it's going on. So it's a it, the joke builds, but it's also it gives you a kind of consistency. Mm-hmm. Something you again, something you can latch on to from the first second of the movie to the last second of the movie. Right. Um, I think I think it's magnificent. I I, I also and this this is apropos of nothing, but I just want to speak to what I think is one of the the best things I have ever seen in any movie, which is, and it, it's so good that they don't even put a fine point on it, which is what makes it so good, is off screen Rip Taylor saying, uh, <laughs> of his conversation about Jim Morrison, right. 
I said, you sound more like a crooner in a rock milieu. I mean, that's like Greal Marcus level of rock criticism. <laughs> Thrown away and in the mouth of Rip Taylor. <laughs> uh, Mike Myers is a genius. Oh, that's great. That's why I think Mike Myers is an absolute genius. And, and there's, you know, the Sammy Davis Jr. stuff as well. Right, Tim Meadows. Like, what person in 1993 is thinking of, a, of, of like, matching up Jim Morrison and Sammy Davis Jr.? Mm -hmm. I mean, only someone Sammy, who has, wait like, up. a... Yeah. <laughs> only someone who has this, like, you know, this kind of rich understanding of, of American pop, pop culture, culture history. Yeah. And I, so I've got a... I don't know... If, um. I don't think I have anything else except for the, the credit yeah, check. Yeah, credit check me. The first part of my credit check is what you already mentioned, right. the Ionized Cody, uh, the riff on the crying Native American. Don't worry. We're going to clean it up. <laughs> and this just reminded me that this is a movie that knows exactly the right joke to make and exactly where to put it in the movie. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a better... Li literally, I cannot now tell you of a better post credit sting out there. No, well, yeah. It's just it's just phenomenal. It's And again, like it's ringing that comedy sponge. You know, it's like... We got one more yeah, Native right, American right, joke right. in here. I can see a little drip <laughs> of a Native American joke in here. But we're going to execute it perfectly. And we're going to have it at the, at the credits when, you know, you're you're sort of least expecting it or, you know, you're, you're, you're ready for this joke. Well, this movie was a um, delightful surprise for me. I, like I said, either earlier in this show or on our ranking episode, I was disappointed when I first saw it in the theater. And now I can't imagine why. No. Uh, that makes no sense to me. In talking about it, now I'm starting to waver on my ranking because <laughs> oh, well, I yeah, spent but, just I so mean, much time gushing about it. But no, your criticisms. But my are criticisms well are, yeah. I mean, I those are the they're definitely legitimate. Yeah. Well, I have one more one more credit yeah. check, which, if you can imagine such a thing, makes the Kenny G joke even funnier. <laughs> I don't remember. Did they? Did... There's a credit. There's a credit here. Late on, it, late on in the credits, it says, it, it's basically saying Kenny G refused to let his actual music be used for this film, <laughs> and that what you hear when they play Kenny G is actually an entirely original composition created by Carter Burwell. Oh my God! Carter Burwell wrote a perfect <laughs> pastiche of a Kenny G riff. That's amazing. For the purposes of this movie. Yeah, I never would have thought it wasn't a Kenny G. I know. And when I saw that I thought, well that that's just twice as funny that that we're you know, we're able to, you know, we're we're making fun of Kenny G and yet Kenny G is not agreeing to any of this. Wow. And 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 one of the best composers in cinema has come along and said <laughs> This is what Kenny G is. That's amazing. This this is what it this is what it, because there you know I when I think of Kenny G I think of uh, Craig Ferguson's um That's what I think of but this is this is as good. So amazing. 
audio visual this movie is working on all kinds of all kinds of levels that just just delight me and you know we haven't really when we said anything about the performances of mike myers and david yeah, right. because there's so much amazing stuff going in this movie it almost goes without saying that both but they of them are, are so incredible. these two characters so these two characters, but their range yeah, right. as performers. When you see Dana Carvey break out into a Cary Grant impression, <laughs> an excellent Cary Grant impression, I might yeah. add, then blowing bubbles out of a pipe. <laughs> Fuck. It, it's it's because you're right that they, they they embody the characters so you know so perfectly you kind of forget that these are guys who can sort That's of do the anything thing is because the, the characters are so broad but their performances of them are so grounded so grounded and so um so so nuanced as well. And that's the, that's what's great when Odenkirk and Smeagol turn up because you mm-hmm. you, you realize that that like the, there are stereotypes in this movie but Wayne and Garth are not stereotypes right <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean like it's they're not caricature nothing actually nothing in this movie is caricatured i would say um aside from maybe James Hong i was going to say yeah purpose purpose purposefully and just the the way that the in that sequence, which you mentioned, but I, I didn't say anything about, just the way that it, it the fight sequence, you it, mean? Yeah, yeah, just the way that it reproduces the look and feel and editing style of a actual martial of an, arts. Yeah, movie exactly. Is, I've never seen it was so much, so much effort. I mean, the sequence achieves its full potential because they pay attention to every aspect of of film, whether it's the dubbing, mm-hmm. the subtitles. The zooms, the cutting, um, and it, you know, I, I, it's this is not even an a, you know, the, this, it's kind of you, you, you see a sequence like that, and you think this movie really does not need to have this to be good, right, right. It's not an Abram Zucker movie where if you don't get that stuff right, it looks, it looks terrible. bad, right. This is an this is an additional pleasure, mm-hmm. and. They have put so much thought and effort and knowledge into this one, uh, this one sequence, which could easily be edited out of the film without any loss. Right. Well, and of course, next we're gonna be talking about yeah. Hot Shots, Part Dieu. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm realizing right now there might be a single joke in that movie, early in that movie catapulted the movie to my the top of my list. That's okay. So I'm excited to talk about it. But ladies I and gentlemen... I could easily say the same about YMCA here. Right. That was the moment I right. knew nothing would beat it. Well... Nothing would beat it. Ladies and gentlemen, tell us what you think of Wayne's World 2. We're unabashed fans. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Send us an email to everythingsequel at gmail.com. You know who he is. He's going to give you a quote... Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions signing off with Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Give it to him, Tom. We'll be sure to cross the T's and dot the lowercase J's. <laughs> Arguably the best line in the Probably. movie. Probably. Arguably. Yeah. <laughs> One of them. But it has some strong competition. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, ladies and gentlemen. Up next, Hot Shots Part 2, another 1993 movie.